Welcome once again to the Future Farm Podcast. I am Florian Ritzman. Our last show with Kit Papworth ended on a note of optimism. Arable farming is not profitable enough to attract the investment it needs, but a shift towards environmentally based subsidies could help change that. So we wanted to poke in and around profitability and carbon a little bit more and get the views of other farmers and hopefully understand what is different and what is the same. On today's show, we are lucky to have Sophie and Tom Gregory, who are award-winning organic dairy farmers from Dorset. They run their business with equal amounts of passion and business acumen. Now, let's hear them talk for themselves. I am sure you will enjoy this. I'm Sophie and um, I'm a first generation dairy farmer so I, I'm not from a farming background and I came into it from actually from an accountancy background um, which actually is really helpful on the farm now um, it, definitely in these times the subsidies going and things but we are yeah very low input low output so we've got 360 cows sort of 500 kilo animals um, and we're sort of selling milk solids rather than liters so we want uh, a cow that's going to give good fats and good proteins we carve twice a year so we're sort of split block carving so we carve two-thirds of our herd in about now we've just had a calf this morning and then this is um february time and then we start carving again sort of middle of august and that's mainly because of seasonality as well to try and keep that milk profile level um we supply arla we're organic we've been organic for seven years now and that i suppose that originally probably was more of a financial decision but um over the course of the last seven years it's definitely become an ethos for us and it's a way that we would farm you know even if we didn't have an organic contract we we definitely go from the soil up feed the cows from the ground up so yeah we we're it's a tenanted farm we're share farming so we own 50 percent of everything here bought in at 20 percent with a business partner and we've bought him to 50 50 at the moment um we yet across two two tenanted farms um sort of just under a thousand acres in total um and our biggest thing is to try and get as much milk from from forage as possible um and, and mainly from grass so our cows have been out three weeks already um so mainly be because the weather's been quite kind uh, but normally grazing from february till sort of november december time uh, so very very small cows um limiting soil impact you say you're a first generation farmer but clearly know your stuff how did you get into farming so my husband, I met my husband when I was sort of 16, 17. Uh, we had a baby quite young, uh, sort of 18 on a gap year. And I sort of went down the accountancy route because I couldn't go to uni because I had a, um, a young one. And uh, it's something that sort of matched my skill set. And he always, from the moment I met him, said he wanted to go back dairy farming. His dad had come out of dairy when Quota was was there and he couldn't make it work. There's two family farms, but both are run, you know, run by uh, family members still. So uh, I thought he was mad, completely mad, uh, but he wouldn't give up the stream. And um, when we came to the farm eight years ago, I, I thought I was going to carry on with my accountancy work. But it became quite apparent quite quickly that I, I really loved it. And it, I started by rearing the young stock. And then I've just have become, you know, joint partners with my husband running it. So, yeah, I do everything from milking to feeding calves to managing the grazing. Yeah. Um, but it, it was strange because it really does match my skill set. But at school, no one would have suggested that as a career path. So, yeah, um, so very grateful that I've, I've landed on my feet with it. Well, I, I studied history and now I run... Uh... 
a marketplace for agricultural input. Yeah, I guess we're alike in that regard. So from that to the 2021 Dairy Woman of the Year, congratulations. Do you farm anything else besides um, dairy? No, actually, we um, dairy will always be our you know our main thing. But we have a, a small um, suckler herd of of white park cattle, which are like a rare na native breed, um, and they are grazed on uh, on a sort of two hundred block of what would be known as rewilding, which is a bit of a controversial one I know amongst farmers. But it's um, we we look after and and manage the animals and own the animals in in that rewilding project. So our landlords have put a put a rewilding um, project together, and, and we we're putting the animals into that so it's a farm that actually um we were offered for heifer grazing and we turned down because it's uh it's just not very viable bit of land mm -hmm. so it's sort of being yeah handed back to to nature and with the help of some yeah white park cattle and those cattle are for milk as well or do you do no no they're for beef so the plan with those is to sell any excess it's for okay. beef so cool. it's a sort of suckler herd so it gets calves stay on the mums and, and sort of wean and then um we would sell any sort of boys and probably keep the girls as replacements now when it comes to milk uh, you mentioned at the outset that you work with arla and this is something that i think most consumers who just think milk grows on the supermarket shelf they don't really know how the price of milk is actually formed um, how does somebody up there at arla decide what you get paid and what inputs do you have into that price so like you guys we're a cooperative so we're all sort of farmer owned. So um, we we also get a 13th payment as well as having a set milk price. So that's decided as by the board of representatives. And it's it's decided really on supply and demand and what the market's looking like. So even if the demand at the time is not really there for a milk price increase, if they feel that that will protect future milk supplies, then they will give it. Recently, we've ha we've had a situation where, you know, rising inputs, um, I think there was a bit of a worry that production would drop off because people just couldn't keep up with the rising costs. So we saw one of the biggest milk price increases in, in a long time, which needed to happen. Energy's going up, everything's going up. And um, I wasn't following so uh it is it's normally um market dependent as in what what you know supply and demand but if there is a situation where they need to protect that future milk uh then they will so they will offer offer a higher price but that's decided on a monthly basis so that's um we would get a, normally get a text message um saying you know your milk will either be staying the same dropping or going up so yeah it's around sort of the third week in, in the month that you get the next months we can, as, as a member, we can uh, stand to be elected um, and then make it onto the BOR board if you want to. And then obviously that would, would give a decision in the milk price. But we don't generally, um, as someone not elected, have that much um, control over that milk price. For argument's sake, if a, if, a if a litre of milk costs a pound, how much of that pound comes back to you? So because we're we're organic, so um, we at the moment we're getting about I think it's about forty four p a litre, but it will completely depend also on things like how much volume we get a bonus for volume. So because they want to be collecting milk from the same place, um, we get a, a a volume bonus. We also get uh, bonuses on um, back to scan, which is how clean the milk is, cell count, how um, which is you know the health of the milk also. Uh, that goes the other way that we'd be penalised. So that milk price can completely depend. And and also the other thing we get um, hit on is 
in in the spring there is a reduction for seasonality because there's always a huge flush where the cows go out to grass of over you know oversupply so to try and get people to produce milk in the autumn or try and keep people sort of level profile um that that is deducted it's very hard to say that the one person will get that milk price every farm will be getting a different milk price depending on on what amount of milk they're selling how clean their milk is how you know all of those things so that's essentially for you a way to differentiate you said organic you say quality so essentially you you have some some leverage some leeway within with arla as the better your milk is the more you get for it so there's an, a direct incentive for you to produce better milk is that correct yeah absolutely correct and and actually we use those incentives um within our staff as well so our main chap is on on a not on a volume bonus but on a, a back to scan and cell count bonus so if he hits those which are actually lower lower than what what we need from arla uh need to get the bonuses from arla then he gets a reward also to try and keep everyone aiming for the same thing this is very, uh, very different from the conversation I had two weeks ago with with Kit Patworth. So he his price is essentially set on what is an arable stock market, where you know his price is the world price for grain. He told me, and this is quite clear in that conversation, that to upgrade his product isn't really an option for him uh, because essentially the risk involved in growing a higher grade of wheat isn't really worth it because the mill might still you know, reject it. So this is already very interesting that your your life or your the way your economics work is, is very different. And also probably you say that your price is set more regularly, monthly, and by an organization that you actually directly or indirectly, you have a vote in it. Uh, that is interesting. So you, you're saying 44p out of the pound essentially yes. go back to you. Okay. Yes. I've had a look at the DEFRA numbers and it looks like dairy farming, you know, compared to arable, 38% of income from subsidies versus 4%. Uh, sorry, the other way around. I meant dairy farming is far less dependent on subsidies, even though it is still dependent uh, than, than arable. And that might be the reason. Um, there is no Arla in wheat. Okay. <laughs> And I think I think also what we've always thought with dairy is there's that that um, when people have come out of dairy and um, people we know have come out of dairy is that what they've really missed is that monthly milk check and actually at the moment we're on two monthly so they give a prepayment so that it's, it's that regular cash flow whereas with wheat obviously you're you're either going to buy um, sell it forward in big chunk you know it's not that regular income so it makes sort of cash flow and things easier to to achieve. Moving on then to um, high input prices. So you have levers of differentiation, but when your labor cost goes up, when your energy costs go up, to what extent are you able to pass price increases on? Does it again go back to the whole Arla, um, you know, will pick this up a month later? Uh, is, is that the answer here? Um, I suppose, um, I it was it was a huge you know it was a relief I expect amongst the whole pool of of Arla members to see that milk that jump and it needed to happen especially organically as we have really high feed costs um it's very hard to source organic feed uh, reasonably well um and um for us it's you know trying to control things we can so with labor wise um we haven't really ever had much European labor just just because we've managed to have local you know local and also it's just um, it's me and my husband both work on the farm and then a main chap and then what we found the way for, for us to control that is we always have uh, people training on the farm uh, and and that's sort of a social thing for our businesses in 
I like that social impact of our business that we're doing a good thing by bringing someone but also that comes with it that we, we were not having a high you know we don't have a huge cost on that although it's our time and things but we're always looking to bring you know new people in feed wise with Tom would probably say we're going to feed a bit less we're going to look at a different way of doing things so we've looked you know different ways of uh, reseeding you know we don't plow anymore we're doing you know different things to cut out that cost even if we take a slight um, hit on production actually the, we're very much a cost control business so with anything I'm buying it's three quotes on everything you know everything you know from gloves to chemical to you know anything would be three quotes I, I have people I use but I would always check check the pricing you have to be it's got to be a business it's not a lifestyle choice it's a it's a business that's why we build a marketplace online where people can check prices for all sorts of things but uh, what about beef uh, so you've got a bit of beef cattle here as well how are i'm assuming that um when you're, you're dealing directly with an abattoir or how how does the revenue materialize there so all of that beef will be sold direct to customer because it's a, a rare breed and it's um, the meat's well known for being you know, a, a certain calibre. Um, we've got people already saying, let us know when you have meat. You know, it's a real, we're not going to have mass numbers. It's not going to, it's not intensive at all. They'll have no um, grain or there's not substituted with, with any grains or anything like that. So it's quite a, it's got a lot of um, unique selling points. So we won't, we won't be having, I, I don't think it will be such a problem. I think the costs on, um, you know, the abattoir costs, you know, that it will cost, but I, th I think it will, uh, it will be word of mouth and and probably social media selling it. It will be very, I think we, because of the small numbers, if we're doing it on a bigger scale, then it, it might be a different story. But um, we have hardly any costs with those beef animals because we're, we're finishing them at three years old. They're not being pushed. They, you know, they are they're doing a job. They're, they're there for um, conservation reasons. So the, the meat that comes off them is a benefit, really. So you're selling them essentially then to high-end butchers, is that? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, or, or just to, you know, local people. Um yeah anyone who you know wants to know exactly where their food's from you know just if they want you know if they'd rather eat a little bit less meat but better quality that's yeah you know. and because of the numbers involved the price discussion is probably a one-on-one -on -one that is sort of exactly yeah and it will be sort of a meat box so you know a variety of things unless they want a specific thing there's a local restaurant that had sort of half an animal off us and we were able to say what do you want and they had that and then the rest went into other meat boxes that you know one family had this and that and we made it work so that, it's almost like a trademark of, of modern farmers is this kind of diversified revenue particularly the, the high-end stuff like what you're doing there with your cattle yeah. i i hear about that a lot to go essentially um, go for quality, smaller numbers, and more price control at the end of the day. Okay, so at the very beginning, we talked about carbon. Yeah. And I was quite interested in that because carbon's... So in a previous conversation, we've had the CEO of Agrina, major um, certification startup from Denmark, on the call. And he's essentially explained that carbon sequestration, you know, the whole certification process, is currently really geared towards arable farmers because it's just simply the easiest to measure the impact of um, uh, no-till and, and all that kind of um, processes that you have to adopt in order to become uh, a member of a company like like Agrina. How does it work with you guys? Uh, how would you benefit from uh, carbon sequestration and make some money out of that? Can I call Tom in now? <laughs> 
that's allowed. Of course. <laughs> he just walked through the door because this is his absolute passion. Uh, and I'd hate for him to miss out on it. I mean, from my point of view and from a very basic point of view is, is for us, the biggest thing now is to get some good baselines so that yeah. we have some, some, something to go off and something to prove against. That's the first thing we're trying to do now. But um, yeah, Tom's been doing a lot of research into it because there is hope that it might support some of the um, difference between subsidy and, you know, there might be, it might replace subsidies. Is the hope. <laughs> Here's Tom. Thank you. Hi, Tom. Sorry. Nice to have you on. Yes. So you were out there taking cores for uh, essentially for um, carbon measuring purposes. So do you want to talk me through uh, what's going to happen with those cores and going forward, what you intend to do? Yeah. So we've got um, a lady in doing the the cores who's, who knows a huge amount more about soil than I do. So I was just trying to pick her brains and learn what she knows. Um, but those, those cores will go back and I think they use bulk density to find out um, organic matter and um, carbon. And these are base samples. And in five years, they'll come back and do another set to see how much carbon we've, we've stored over that five-year period. And then we can compare that to our output. And what processes are you adopting to to enrich the soil with with added carbon? What are, what changes are you making? It's really hard one. One of the problems with with sort of like regen dairies is there's not a set of rules. So we're doing loads of trials and experiments to try and find out what does and doesn't work. What I'm focusing on is a, a soil food web approach. So it, we're trying to understand first sort of base figures of where we are, how, how much bacteria, how much fungi, um, how healthy is our soil? What is it that's made it this healthy or this unhealthy? And what changes do we need to make? Management changes do we need to make? So we've got several trials going on on farm. So we're looking at um, grazing round length, grazing height, grazing residual, different crop establishment methods, um, trying to reduce tillage, yeah, different types of forages and herbs and brassicas, legumes, which works best. And then with some training that I'm doing, some uh, microscope training and um, making compost, hopefully we'll be able to actually on farm work out whether these work out what these trials are doing. Uh, one of the biggest problems is the cost in soil samples. We're looking at 250 pounds per sample. So it's 250 pounds per field. We've got something like 70 fields on farm for like 1500 quid. I'm able to do a course, which is some, with some grant funding to teach me how to use a microscope. So I can do a lot of the testing on farm. This is interesting. What you said at the beginning, which is that there isn't really a whole lot of rules and processes and regulations around the livestock area when it comes to carbon sequestration. And this is what we were told a few podcasts ago. Um, that is really, this, this is most mature in the arable sector. Perennial farmers, apple farmers don't know really what to do. Um, the standards are all very different. Yeah. Uh, is there any company floating around that could help you with that and say, if you do this, uh, we will measure this for you. And then in two years time, there'll be that many credits. Here's your certificate. Now go ahead and sell it. No. Um, is, is it as far along as that or are we in the complete wild west so far? I think we're in the wild west. I think if you take a crop of winter wheat, you've got so many knowns 
where you say you you have a stubble field and you cultivate your winter wheat in a certain way and those cultivations have probably already got a carbon score so a plow is this much carbon released or a, a min till is this much or a diet drill is this much and then you say well what's the output the output is the grain what's the grain yield we know the grain yield because we we needed to know that and was the straw incorporated or taken and that's sort of all the maths so it's really simple for the carbon capture credit company man to come and do an audit without actually having to do soil samples because they've already done some soil samples and they've worked out if you've got a sand loam whatever with then you've plowed it and then had four ton of wheat off it and incorporated the straw this is the change so they can model it really easily when you take a livestock farm the crop grown isn't often measured as accurately so we measure all our grass we measure grass growth but you would and um tillage operations or compaction operations or there's a lot of a lot more variables going on and it's they're having to work out sequestration um through actual soil rather than inputs or outputs because yeah. the inputs and the outputs are like a, a constant variable it's easier when you put less fertilizer on it's really easy to yeah, yeah work yeah. out you know what you're what you've actually done for the for carbon in your soil i get that okay so you're kind of pioneers on that um what's the main driver in the end is it just to have you know healthier soil feed feed cows and make they make better milk or is there sort of a, a you know in two three years time regulations will have caught up the government will have produced this wonderful uh, agriculture bill and um, there will be a, a, a revenue opportunity for you as well is it both uh yeah definitely i think the the way if we if we can prove or if we can demonstrate that you can grow as much grass um organically as you can conventionally without any chemical or tillage inputs that's great for the environment but at the same time if we can also do that with the organic milk price that's great for our business and, and when you incorporate the social aspects that Sophie does as well, that, that seems like quite a rounded, a rounded it's approach. A triple bottom line. We always try and yeah, look at the business in a three three line, not just profit line. It's it, Obviously, it has to be sustainable, but it has to be good on the people who work here and good on the environment that we work in. Um, to Obviously, we couldn't do it if it wasn't sustainable, though. If it, if it didn't make any money, we, we couldn't do it. We wouldn't be here you know, doing yeah. it. And is the, um, the flip side to going... Uh, no-till in in uh, in arable seems to be that for two or three years your yields will drop yeah uh, and then they should recover maybe not to a hundred percent but you know thereabouts do, do are you foreseeing something similar so you'll have maybe less grass to feed um, and you'll have to buy that in is that something that you're, you're looking at as well we're dipping our toe in if, if we say the the core business as an organic dairy farm ticks quite a lot of regen boxes anyway because mm -hmm. we're, we're pretty much all grass and we're grazing animals and we've got ground cover and things like that but so we're making small tweaks to the business so that the actual business bottom line shouldn't be negatively affected so the the changes aren't that extreme we could probably change become sort of like a 
pin up regenerative farm really quickly but i think we might also run the risk of you know going under so having to make small marginal changes so we can you know make sure that you know the business still is at the forefront of, of what we do i just have one final question really which is not as much a question but a sort of what what sort of what's your prediction when i spoke to kit papworth who is this arable farmer i asked him does he foresee a cost increase for consumers when it comes to food prices um, what i'm seeing from the input side because you, know, you you might have missed this tom we, we we sell agricultural inputs on a digital online marketplace and we obviously seen the huge fertilizer triple what it was a year ago that kind of stuff and so i was asking him you know is this going to feed through into major major price increases so kind of of the kind where in june uh, we should really worry as consumers he said not really because the input price for my wheat is just a small fraction of what goes into a loaf of bread but you mentioned everything's going up right you're <laughs> it's a, so in arable i suppose um yes this is just you know the cost of the wheat is just one one thing to go into a loaf of bread but it, they still need energy they need water they need they need logistics they need all sorts of things to make that bread um and so i'm, I'm just gonna almost put that question back to you again by the summer do we see um do, do you foresee a major increase in what the customer will be asked to pay for product generically, uh, livestock products uh, on the shelves? No. No, I think it, it no. hasn't. Our no. products are loss leaders. Yeah. So I think they would rather increase the price of a Mars bar mm -hmm. by 10p to counteract the Lossing. loss customer. in milk, even if they've paid for the farmer more for milk. I don't think the consumer will necessarily be charged the same increase because the, the milk isn't sold to generate profits, sold to get the people in the shop. And yeah. then they make the profit on the snacks and the crap, the alcohol, the, you know, <laughs> you know, all, all the, you know, all the ultra. Hey, I like alcohol. <laughs> um, so I think that's where we'll probably see Walker's Crisps and Pepsi Max go same price, but 10 grams less or, you know, all the tricks they do. Yeah. But I think a pint Maybe of milk, a loaf of bread, and a pack of mints, beef mints. Because it's an, essential, it's an essential product, and you believe the supermarkets are going to wear it. Ultimately, they're going to pay the price of these increases um, and not the consumer. That, that's, I didn't think of that. That's a wow. Okay. Um, like I said, that was my, my last poignant question for you uh so um i don't think the supermarkets will wear it though i think they'll pass it on in other ways yeah that, that's the point you made through through the mars bars of this world okay well thank you very much for your time it's been very very good what did i take away from that well firstly Compared to Kit Papworth's wheat farming business, dairy farmers are less exposed to raw market forces. And that seems to be largely due to the existence of powerful marketing cooperatives like Arla, who sit between the individual farmer and supermarket milk buyers. And the numbers bear that out. Dairy farmers get 38% of their income from subsidies, compared to a much higher 66% for arable farmers. They do also have a critical advantage though. If Tesco doesn't like the price of British milk, they cannot just import it from Canada. Grain is an international market, and local grain can be substituted by imports if it cannot be grown at an internationally competitive price. But still, 
Maybe arable farmers in the UK could benefit from something like Arla for themselves. I'm leaving that out there. On the carbon side, we heard that carbon sequestration is a good thing to do in its own right. Lots of healthy grass grown on carbon-rich soil is good for cows, so it is a good business decision for an organic farm like Tom and Sophie's. Can the extra carbon stored in livestock soil generate extra money? Well, that's not quite as clear yet. Certainly not as clear as it is with arable. Just listen to episode two of our podcast with Chris Hollingsworth to get that sense. But that is all the more incentive for us at Future Farm to get our boots on and build proper carbon guidance into our marketplace. We're on it this year. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until the next time, this is the Future Farm Podcast.